Hi, everyone. I am Val McCauley. And I am Chris Dunn. And we've started an organization in the Treasure Valley called Hand in Hand Family Mentorship. And our goal is bringing hope through friendship and mentorship. So what we do is we match supportive and encouraging individuals with parents who are in need of added support. And these referrals come to us from the Department of Health and Welfare, from Family Advocates and Boise Rescue Mission Ministries. And so these individuals, they come from hard places. They're people who are trying to get their children out of foster care or regain custody. They're trying to get their lives back on track. They are trying to overcome trauma and lead productive lives. And we believe that it is the power of a positive, healthy connection that is one of the first steps in healing. So please visit us at handinhandmentoring.org to be a part of this solution. So I would like to just recap what we touched on last week in our interview with Matt Shaughnessy. If you listened in, he was abandoned as an infant at 10 months old, went into the foster system until he was almost three. Uh, then he was adopted to a family that probably shouldn't have been able to adopt him, had a very difficult experience there, and the adoption finally failed when he was about eight. He was sent to a boys' wilderness camp for over two years, which was a very terrifying and violent experience for him there as well. He spent some years being on the run, in and out of institutions, and eventually he was taken in by a man and his wife that ran a group home for foster children. And for the first time there, he felt accepted. He felt like he belonged. He felt hope and that someone cared for him. Yes. So Matt, learning about his experiences yesterday, they're tough experiences to hear. So Matt has gone from the teenage years into adulthood with a very heavy load of baggage. And so today we want to talk with him again and find out how he managed after that point. What, what is it that he did to overcome where he had come from? It's when you hear a story, it's obvious that Matt had something within him that would not allow him to give up. And he definitely credits God for being with him through it all. But we want to understand better what tools did he use on his journey of overcoming and learning how to heal from trauma. So Matt, with that, before I ask you the first question, I saw a quote the other day by Michelle Rosenthal, and it says, trauma creates change you don't choose, and healing creates change you do choose. And this next segment of our podcast really, to me, capitalizes on that idea that you chose to heal and you chose to create the change that would bring that about. And that's what makes your story very unique. So my first question is, after you left the foster system and began living on your own, when did you discover that, wow, I'm having serious problems from my past? Or was that something you always recognized? Um, you know, always recognized. I don't know. It might have been something that I always recognized because it was something that Rick Williams had pointed out to me in the times that I lived and stayed with him. And, it, you know, I... I always had the ability to take an issue that let's say is like a five on a scale and escalate it to a hundred yeah. at the drop of a pin needle. Yeah. And so, and so 
Rick Williams had, had always kind of pulled me aside at times and, and had told me you'd better get control of that anger because if you don't, you're going to end up going down a road that mm. myself and nobody else can follow you. So I, I think to a certain extent and, and in foster care, that there were things that I had done uh, getting in, into fights uh, most of the times with other children, including staff members, and then escalating those fights into something like stabbing another child. And yeah. so, but at, at the same time, I also would look in the mirror and think to myself, you can't be that bad. You can't be, you know, there, there, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be, be more to your life. And, but when I graduated out, out of foster care, you know, my caseworker, which by the way, you know, would be switched every like three to six months. It felt like I, I mm -hmm. don't remember how many caseworkers I had. So my caseworker came to me because I graduated, technically I graduated out of the childcare system into the adult system because I had stolen that car from Rick. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually in jail when I turned 18, basically. Mm -hmm. And so when I got out of jail, I, I went to my caseworker and it was a new lady I never met and she gave me a $500 check and a voucher for a bed at the local Salvation Army. And she said, you're 18 years old. You're out of foster care. Uh, see you later. Bye. Oh, and wow. so I, I absolutely was not going to go stay at an adult shelter. That's what I thought in my head. So I slept behind a gas station and had my $500. And I worked construction for, for people and whatnot. So I was always struggling. I had nobody. And, and being an orphan, literally nobody. So I, I did what I could. I lived with with who I could live with. And most of the time they were not good people. I, I lived with a, with a meth cook who taught mm -hmm. me how to, how to cook meth. You know, he, he took me in, you know, obviously you wanted to teach somebody how to cook meth and to watch his back. So that's why he took me in. And so up until about 22, 23, I, I had my own apartment, but I'm going to be honest with you, my, my apartment was nasty. It was trash because I had no life skills whatsoever. Yeah. And I mean, rotten food, mold everywhere. You know, nobody had taught me any of this stuff. Wow. And uh, holding a job was hard. I had always wanted to, to, to be a mechanic, but I was jumping from dealership to, to dealership. And so ultimately, I did what I figured I could do best. And that was rob, steal, cheat, sell drugs, stuff like that, and, you know, for money. And as time went on, I, I found myself becoming more and more angry with society because I would watch people with their families, even people that came from dysfunctional families. I would get so angry at people that would complain about their alcoholic mother or father because I would think to myself, well, at least you know what they look like and who they mm -hmm. are. And at least you went to bed and went to sleep in the same bed every night yeah. uh, versus where I come from. And so my anger towards society as a whole just began to grow. And I was in so much pain from my childhood that I ultimately at around 22 years old, I, I really got to the point to where I just snapped. And, and I'm, I'm left-handed. And, and I mentioned this to, to really get you to understand the seriousness about what I'm about to explain to you. But before I go any deeper, I, I do want to clarify that I'm way better now and I have a wonderful support group of family to support me. But back then I didn't. And so I went out and I purchased specifically a left-handed rifle, mm -hmm. a 30 six, a hunting rifle 
which meant that the bolt action was was on the left-handed side. And I had planned at that moment in time myself to kill as many innocent people as I absolutely could. And I was in a very dark place. I was in so much pain that I wanted to do everything I could to allow society to know and understand that pain. And I was not in control of myself. And the ultimate control over another human being is to take their life. And so this was my mindset. Now, I had had, at that moment, the only person I had had in my life was Rick Williams that had ever taught me anything about love, forgiveness, choice, anything like that. And so I I had got a hotel room, and I was in that hotel room, and in the moment that I wanted to do what I wanted to do, I chose not to. I went against everything that at the moment I felt like I should have been, and I picked up the phone and I dialed 911 instead. This was in Louisville, Texas, okay? And they sent out one police officer, and, and see, this is why I say somebody has been watching out for me. My father in heaven has been watching out for me my whole life because in this moment, and I explained to them who I was, what I was thinking, what I was going through, where, where I had come from. And they sent out one police officer. He came up into that hotel room unarmed and wow. he talked to me for a little bit. He put me in his car and he took me to a place out in Denton, Texas called University, uh, University Behavioral uh, Hospital. And at the moment, they had a world-renowned PTSD program ran by Dr. Mugazi. And so what what they had did, obviously, they had, you know, I was a resident there is is how they treated me. I lived there and I stayed there. And so what they did is actually started treating me in with the soldiers that were coming back from Iraq and whatnot. Hmm. And it was then that they explained to me that, All of the breakthroughs and all the understanding we have on the traumatic brain and PTSD comes from childhood trauma survivors. The only problem that the medical world has is getting us to open up or even finding us because the majority of us are either dead or lost to the system by the time they they can get to it. So so what they've done is they really shifted a lot of this research towards soldiers because it's a lot easier to get a soldier to open up than it is to get somebody who survived child abuse. Yeah. So so that was, you know, I'm 38. That was back when I was 22. And and back then the answer was medication, 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 Hmm. along with therapy. But then as time went on, that was only a temporary fix. And I wanted the same things that everybody else wanted. I wanted a family. I wanted a wife. I wanted kids. You know, the, you know, I wanted all these things in life. And so as I started to accumulate these things, I, I was a mess. And I have a wonderful wife that 10 years ago, I met her. I was around, I was 26. And as we began a relationship, I, I was having a real hard time in this relationship. And I saw my wife as a threat. As I started having children, I saw my children as a threat. Are these people going to leave me? Are these people going to hurt me? And we did start having to deal with some domestic violence in, in the home. And, mm-hmm. and, and I was losing it. And uh, Rick Williams was still alive. He, he's actually been deceased now for a few years. And so I, I talked to Rick Williams about it. And, and Rick Williams had told me that the reason why I was having such a hard time in my adulthood is because I'm selfish. And he said, you still allow 
the anger of your past to affect you. And because you still allow the anger of your past to affect you, you unleash it on those that you love the most. And it's, it comes out as extreme anger. And until the day comes that I can learn to love others more than I love myself, then and only then will I find peace and that it's going to be ultimately up to me that it's, it's ultimately up to me to do that. Now I, I, I definitely believe in God and the Bible and I believe the Bible is, is the perfect manuscript for how to live your life. And Rick taught me that. And so if you are doing what's right and you're trying, people will see that I've learned. It may not feel like it at first and, and you, and because of where we come from, we may be convinced that nobody cares. That there are people out there that care. And yeah. it starts with that police officer that instead of running me down and gunning me down, yeah. came in unarmed and took me to university behavioral hospital. It yeah, starts that, with that one act was an act that of healing one, as well. That, that one little act, it starts with Rick Williams taking the time out of his life to sit down and talk to me and teach me words of wisdom and, and, and show me how to live out these, these words of wisdom. So how long were you there in that facility in Denton, Texas? Uh, I was there for two months. Okay. And then you, you kind of took those tools and went out into the world. And is yes. that when you met Donnell, your wife? Yes, yes, yes. And, and so now one of the things that I got tired of is I realized that medications and stuff like that was only a temporary fix and the nightmares were, were still coming and, the triggers, I, the uncontrollable anger, the rage, all of that was was still coming. And pretty much, I pretty much just held on from about 26 to about 35, 36. So I and pretty your much wife just did too, probably. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> she sounds like an amazing person as well. Yeah, you know, she. Well, Rick Williams had had always told me. If you're going to get married, you need to be very wise who you choose to marry. <laughs> and uh, one day, my wife and I, we had been friends for about a year, and and we had started dating. And she looked at me, she said, I just want you to know that uh, I will never divorce you. So mm. you better treat me right, because if you're wrong, I'm just, I'll, I'll just make your life miserable. So, but That's I a won't good woman. You. But I won't leave you. <laughs> you know? I love it. And you I probably thought, really needed to know that. Though. Oh, believe it or not. Another thing my wife told me when, when we fell in love and we started telling each other, I love you. My wife looked me in the eye one day and she said, I love you. And one day you're going to believe that. Oh. And that, that was years ago. And she knew exactly what, what she meant, what she was doing, because because of where I had been and what I had seen, I, I didn't love myself and I much less allowing anybody else to love me or even believing that anybody else could love. me. So to me, somebody saying, I love you. That was a trigger. That was painful. Uh -huh. That was not okay. To, mm -hmm. You know? And so everything had been so twisted. And so, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having children. I, I've got a wife. And right now we have four children and I start having children and I start having a family and I realize that I am just completely, I, I don't know what the proper word is, ignorant, uneducated. I knew nothing about having a family. I knew nothing about having a relationship. I didn't know how to connect or anything like that. And so it just, it, it was foster care all over again, hmm. basically, as things, as I started to even become somewhat successful, maybe holding jobs longer. 
I was so used to chaos that it got to the point to where I realized I was creating chaos in my life. And, you know, many, many suicidal nights and days and weeks. In those moments, I really just clung to God. Just I, I kept my eye on God and I kept moving forward with the understanding that I have a choice in everything. There is, you know, there is nothing that says I have to kill myself. There's nothing that says I have to act out. I have a choice. And so as time went on, things got harder. I left Texas with my wife and kids and I moved to Idaho. Idaho was to a certain extent as far away from Texas as I could get. And that's kind of to a certain extent what I was doing. And I've been in Idaho now for six years and I have yet to go back to Texas and I probably never will go back to Texas because that's my choice and I just don't want anything to do with Texas. And so um, I, I come to Idaho and I hadn't been in therapy for years and I had actually given up on the medications because I was tired of feeling like a zombie all the time and whatnot. And so I thought things basically did get bad enough again for me to where I finally went to a medical doctor and sought help again. And, and at this point, you, you could see the, physio the, the physiological health issues, the high blood pressure that I had, the heart rate, you know, all this other stuff. As I'm getting older, this is affecting me. It's killing me, you know. And so that's when I got hooked up with a post-traumatic stress therapist that specialized in, in, in PTSD. His name was Javier. And we did cognitive or talk therapy for about six months when he finally came in. And actually, the first thing he said is, why don't we get you a service dog? Uh, but not just, you know, don't go out and spend the money for it. What we want to do is, is we want to do a service dog handler training program so you can acclimate your service dog to you. It's going to build a bond. You're going to learn how to make a connection and attachment to something through this service dog. So that's actually what we did. The first six months in the therapy was I went and I got a service dog and that training for my service dog was, was a wonderful thing. It did exactly what they said it would do it. I ne next thing I know I've made an attachment to something and I had never made an attachment to anything in my life uh, because of the rigors of foster care, because of what I went through in foster care. So now I have this service dog that I've made an attachment to. And, and off of that, we start making attachments to other things like my wife. Like for example, when she said, I love you, I start believing it because I had made that attachment. And so as, as time went on with Javier, that's when he said, there's actually this amazing therapy called EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And he said, I don't know why I didn't think about this before, but it's, it's, it's worked wonders for people that have complex trauma, severe trauma, and stuff like that. And so basically what it is, is it's, it's a series of, of eye movements and hand movements. Now I don't want to reveal too much because there actually is a concern that people might try to do this at home. And if you don't do this with a licensed doctor and a licensed therapist, and to a certain extent, a therapist that has the proper experience, one of the worst side effects is you can traumatize the person all over again. And so it's something you absolutely want to do with the right person. And so it, it's a series of eye and hand movements, bilateral eye and hand movements that 
engage both the limbic system, which is the most primitive part of your brain, which controls your fight or flight, your adrenaline, and all that other stuff like that. At the same time, it also engages other parts of your brain, like the frontal cortex and areas where logic and reasoning take place. And so the thing is, is when a man is facing a bear, a man can't fight a bear. And so what happens is the limbic system, adrenaline dumps, hormones surge through the body, and the limbic system takes over. The first thing it does is it hijacks the rest of the brain and shuts down anything associated with logic or thinking because the brain is preparing the body for a fight or flight scenario. And so at that point, there is no logic or thinking because you're in a fight for your life and all you're trying to do is survive. So once that system is engaged, you can't think. This has been proven by doctors at this point through MRIs and brain scans and research, and there's all kinds of facts out there to prove this. So, so what EMDR does is it purposely engages that traumatic moment. If, if, if you have a man that has to fight a bear every single day of his life, that fight or flight system, just like any other muscle in the body, is going to be overworked overcharged and it's going to take over anything else and so shutting that off is almost next to impossible it's the same thing you see in soldiers that go into combat areas they come home they have a hard time shutting that off and so what they do is they purposely put you back into that traumatic moment for me one of the hardest moments was the night that my adopted father tried to kill me and so as a child, the only thing I could come up with as to why that happened to me, because my brain was, was still in a stage of development, it didn't have the ability to comprehend and understand, and just like a computer, it had been overloaded, completely overloaded. And so for the longest time, I would remember that moment uh, where my adopted father is beating me literally half to death as a moment of something that I caused. I did something to cause that. It was my fault. It was my fault that I was in foster care. It's my fault that I was abandoned. I'm a bad person. I can't think of any other reason why this would happen. And so at that moment, the brain, the limbic system hijacks anything else. There's no logic or reasoning. And, and, and I would become irate hysterical as if I'm being beaten again I would protect myself against my own wife my own children anybody and everything around me well EMDR we purposely would go back to that moment we would find the most horrific moment within that moment which for me was anytime he would start suffocating me or beating me over the head and then we would stay there in that moment and then we would do the bilateral eye and hand movements. And, and yes, I'm crying. Yes, I can feel the pain of it again. I can smell it. I can hear it. I can see it. But now with EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, I can also think through it. And now the logical and reasoning part of my brain has been engaged. And now the doctor can start saying things like, do you realize this was a man that was committing a crime? A man can't fight, cannot fight a bear. An eight-year-old child cannot fight a grown man. 
there was nothing I could have done in that moment in time to cause him from doing that. My adopted father had his own issues and his own problems. He had his own mental instabilities, and that is why he chose to act out the way he acted out, commit a crime, and do what he did to me. Hmm. And so EMDR allows me to understand that, to see that, to absorb that in and process that horrific memory out to the point to where now it is no longer being stored in the most primitive part of my brain. It is now being stored in the same part of the brain where other people who have profound experiences store their memories. So you might have a memory of your mother or father hugging you. And you remember that, and that comes up in what's known as the narrative part of your brain, whereas a trauma memory is stored in the part of the brain where we feel. And so it comes up as an actual emotion, not a narrative. And so what EMDR does is it helps you through logic, reasoning, and thinking now store that in the part of your brain where it's a narrative. So now when I have that trigger, I still have that trigger. And I still see that moment in time. The first thing that happens is I think I don't act. I think. Hmm. And I go, yeah, that did happen. And that sucks. But you know what? You're not there anymore, Matt. You're here today. And you're safe. And you got friends. And you, and you have a family. And these people are around you. And they support you. And there is good out there. And so hmm. BMDR helps me to logically think and, and see these things. And, but in the end, it's it's completely up to you though it's it's completely up to, up to you the person and what it does boil down to just like anything else in medicine is does the outcome outweigh the side effects because to a certain point somebody would say why would i want to put myself through something that could traumatize me all over again well because the outcome outweighs the side effects yeah and, that's a really good point and 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 now i'm free and so so yeah that's that's you the know, it's an interesting thing to get the inside of this whole experience because during the time that we were working to help in the foster system, one of the common comments was about the resiliency of children, that they will heal from these different broken attachments, that you know um, they're so young, it, it, they'll be able to move through it through life. And you know, it'd be really easy for people to look at you now and say, well, look at Matt, he, you know, he went through all that and he turned out all right and he got over it. But you think of that and you think of that um, statement and how false that is because the price that was paid and it's still being paid to overcome. And like you said, retrain the brain so that you can see and feel things correctly has been monumental yeah, and, and, and if we're going to be honest here, um, you know, this is something that I will have to deal with the rest of my life. And Rick Williams once told me when, when, he, when he found out that I had started my own business and I'm a mechanic and I'm becoming successful, he was very honest in something. He said, I'm very impressed with, with how far you've made it, but if it wasn't for foster care, if it wasn't for some of the things you had to endure, you'd probably be building rockets by now. And that's just a real honest testimony as to, yeah, I, I'm resilient. I'm as resilient as they come because I'm still here alive, but that's right. it. That's it. That, that, that is what the resiliency in children is, is no, they're not going to die, 
but right. that resiliency doesn't come without its price. Yeah. And, and so. Matt, share with us how, how relationships have helped facilitate healing. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When I first met my wife, everybody in the world said, Hey, you better watch out for him. He's bad news. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and so my whole life, people have always been telling me how bad I am, how, how terrible I am. And so when I started developing relationships and making friends and, and whatnot, and to a certain extent, uh, some of this does come from me because I did choose to get out there and eat, open myself up and, and meet people. But, but next thing I know, I, you know, honestly, I started going to places like churches and other places where I might not even normally go myself and and I started meeting people and some people would hear my stories and they would want to help right off the bat let me give you a a place to live man let me give you a car let me do this I used to tell people all the time that's not what I need I just need a friend man Mm. I just need somebody I just need to know that somebody out there cares about me loves me and and cares for me you know kind of like what what Rick Williams did and so as time went on I started making these friends that they picked up the phone when, when I would call them yeah. or, or better yet, it wouldn't matter what was going on in my life, how, whatever, by whoever's opinion, how messed up my life was, I would get a text message or a phone call. Hey, you want to go to breakfast or, Hey, you want to go to lunch or, you know, and, and these people that have come into my life, they, they just love me, period. They, they don't try to fix things. Mm-hmm. unless it's a situation where they know for a fact, Hey, I need to step in and fix this. Cause that is what friends and family do for each other. But for the most part, they, they just love me yeah. and they believe in me. It doesn't matter whether I have tattoos on my arms. It doesn't matter where I come from or where I've been or what I've seen. These people believe in me. Mm-hmm. And, and so to a certain extent, that's put uh, encouragement into my spirit to, to want to become the person worthy of, of what these people, people think I am, you know, whereas I've always had this one group of friends that, that, you know, they don't choose to, to get themselves out of the mud and, and they're always drinking and they're always doing drugs that are always, there's always an excuse to it. And, and I really realized that, wow, these people, you know, I love them and I care for them and they're my friends, but they're, they're holding me down. Whereas these people are telling me, Matt, we know you can own a shop, Matt. We know you can become self-reliant, yeah. and you know. And, and so, in the end, it's just the little things: picking up the phone, going out to breakfast, uh, the text message here and there. Hey, buddy, how's it going? You know, how you doing? It's it's that people just through everyday action letting me know that they care for me yeah. and they believe in me. That that's that's a part of what's really kept me going. So, Matt. What kind of advice would you give to people who've come from similar situations to you, people that are coming out of places of trauma? What would you tell them? Uh, a life without challenges is a life not worth living. <laughs> um, it, it, it's really not. And, and, and that's what trauma really is, what it boils down to, is it's a challenge in your life. And and you have the choice to either allow that challenge to beat you down for the rest of your life. And if you do so, you'll be a slave or you can choose to come against it. And if you do so, you'll find that people will walk with you 
uh, in that walk. And you will enjoy a sense of freedom that is beyond any that what most people can even comprehend. That's awesome. So I have a, a poem that I think you'll like, Matt. I'm not sure who wrote the poem, but I thought it was profound. It says, uh, I have been victimized. I was in a fight that was not a fair fight. I did not ask for the fight. I lost. There's no shame in losing such fights. I have reached the stage of survivor and am no longer a slave of victim status. I look back with sadness rather than hate. I look forward with hope rather than despair. I may never forget, but I need not constantly remember. I was a victim, but I am a survivor. Now, I wondered what your thoughts were on that, because I feel like you have not only survived, but thrived. Yes. And those very things have, to me, made you what you are today. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, nowadays, I have the enjoyment of understanding that the worst that could happen in life has already happened to me. I mean, we still live in a chaotic world. And every day we have to face uh, horrific things and challenges. But for me, to a certain extent, I get to live my life understanding and knowing that, man, I've really faced a lot of horror, horrific challenges that are not going to happen again. And so nowadays, everyday life is just like another day in paradise. To me. It's just a walk in the park. I, there, there are people that are running around uh, just like Chicken Little today. And this I'm just over here just like, hey, it's going to be all right, everybody. Take a deep breath, you know? And yeah. so you've so been empowered me, by what yeah. you've overcome. Yeah. yeah you've and, overcome fear. If you think about it, that's really what it is. You've stared fear in the face. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, I've gone from, from victim to survivor and then from survivor to thriver yeah. because nowadays, you know, I mean, we, we all have our struggles, and I definitely have my struggles, but, but let me tell you, I'm surrounded by friends, I'm surrounded by family, people that believe in me, people that love me, and that's all I ever wanted growing up. Yeah. And, and I really have, have been able to see that life is not about obtaining wealth, life is about always being there for those that are in need. And if you do that, you will obtain greater wealth than the richest materialistic person on this earth. Yeah. So Matt, thinking about that, what advice would you give mentors who are working uh, with people who come from these hard places? What would you tell them? Uh, have an open heart, have an open mind. Um, those of us that come out of these places have come as far as we have come in very unconventional ways. And so you may see unconventional things, and, and whatnot. But in the end, as much as we can learn from you, you may actually learn something from us as well. And so I, you know, step outside of your comfort zone. And if you do, I, I promise you won't regret it. Yeah, I can vouch for that. Through our relationship with you, we've just felt <laughs> like we're different people. I've we felt like uh, we see the world differently um, because of what the lessons that life has, has taught you. We feel more gratitude for the simple things that so often we just 
take for granted. Yeah. And it's, it just really opened our eyes and we have so much to learn from each other. And I think that's the beautiful thing is this is not about, you know, reaching down and pulling someone out of the gutter, even though it might seem like sometimes these people are in the gutter they have lived a life without support. Their souls are good. Their souls want to do exact, we're very similar. They want to do and accomplish the things that we feel in our hearts. They want to be happy. And so that friendship is so key. And it's interesting how everything that you've been through has allowed you to lay hold on the most important thing in life, which is relationships. That is what you value the most. And like you said, that is true wealth is the relationships that we have in our lives. Yeah. And uh, it's inspiring. Yeah, Matt, thank you for sharing this with us. Um, we love your story because it, it talks about um, what helped you heal. And, and part of that was all this trail of a few really important healthy connections that you had of people that that saw you believed in you and uh, stayed by you like you say walked with you and that is really what we have an opportunity to do here at hand in hand mentoring is as we receive referrals from health and welfare family advocates and Boise rescue mission ministries everybody needs what Matt was talking about which is a friend and someone to believe in them and help them to see what is possible for them in life. And again, we receive so much as we become friends with people that, that need us and we need them. So as you have interests or questions about this process, please visit our website, www.handinhandmentoring.org and, and join us and be part of the solution. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you so much, Matt.